All right, we pick up this week in Second Chronicles chapter 13, and this week we have a new king to introduce, and we're going to find that he does a couple of things here in chapter 13 that are worth talking about. Um, first of all, he initiates one of the largest battles, uh, not just in the history of the nation of Israel, but I suppose in the history of the whole world. And then also, we're going to find that he gives a, a speech about why he's going to start this battle. And it's a, it's an interesting example of political spin in the ancient world. And so we're going to have to play fact checker, like some of the uh, modern news organizations in order to evaluate the, uh, the argument he makes for why he's going to go to battle. Before we do that though, uh, take a look at this, uh, chart of the kings of Judah and Israel. Uh, I said last week that the pastor had asked me to uh, to get a chart of those to pass out to uh, help people understand who was king when and uh, how they fit into the, the timeline, the picture of the kings of Judah and Israel in the divided kingdom. And I couldn't find one that really uh, gave all the information that I, I wanted there are certain things that I want to point out as we go along that I couldn't find any one chart that had all of it. So I made my own and uh, you've got that there. You've see that it's God on the left hand column, the Kings of Judah, the right hand column, the Kings of Israel. And, uh, you can see the, how the table is listed across the top. There's, uh, in the first column, the King, second column, the house, that is the first King of that dynasty, which in Judah will, always after David reigns will always be David, except for one exception, but it's much more unstable in the Northern kingdom of Israel. And there are a number of different dynasties that ruled there. He gives the length of the reign, uh, the character of their reign. A lot of charts just list these Kings as either good or evil, but uh, you'll see that I listed a start and an end because there were some of them who started good and ended evil or, started evil and ended good, uh, list their capital. And uh, after David, of course, all the kings in Judah have their capital at Jerusalem. But the capital in Israel, in the northern kingdom, moved around a little bit. And we'll get into that later about why some of that's important. Uh, we list the key prophets, not necessarily every prophet that prophesied during that king's reign, but uh, we want to highlight those that either prophesied to that king or about that king. And then key scriptures that tell the story of that king. Now, uh, there might very well be some mistakes in this table. Uh, it's very difficult to compile all this information and get it straight. One of the things I've found is that most of the tables that you find in study Bibles and, and so on, commentaries, have a mistake or two in them if you look very carefully. So we'll reserve the right to edit this a little bit as we go. Uh, for those that are listening online, I put the the table of the Kings, uh, on sermon audio as a PDF that you can download. Uh, I can't get it to uh, be visible on the app, but if you go to the sermon audio website and either look up Elizabeth missionary Baptist church, or look up my name, Mark Ruby, you can, uh, select the series about the divided kingdom. And you'll see one of the things listed there is a table of Kings of Judah and Israel. And so you'll have that to print out and follow along with us as we go. Anyway, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 13, 
we come to a new king. Ever since we started this series, we've been dealing basically with two men. And it was King Rehoboam in the south. He was Solomon's son. And then there was King Jeroboam in the north, who was the one who broke the northern ten tribes away from the southern kingdom. All the lessons we've done so far revolve around those two men. Well, when we come to chapter 13, Rehoboam passes off the scene. And he has a son named Abijah, or he's sometimes called Abijam. And he becomes the king of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, he'll be the one we focus on in this lesson today. Now, throughout the reigns of uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they reigned alongside each other for about 17 years, they had skirmishes with with each other, it appears. Uh, The scripture teaches us that there was battle between them throughout their reigns, but it doesn't seem to be major conflict. It, It seems to be something more like border skirmishes. We don't even have a lot of detail about exactly what those battles were. But when this man, Abijah, comes into power, he's going to lead a battle like Israel has really never seen, and maybe the whole world has never seen. The numbers are extraordinary. We'll see some of this as we go further in this lesson, but let me uh, let me point this out now. When they fight this battle, Judah has an army of 400,000 men, and Israel brings to bear an army of 800,000 men. And uh, so we have 1.2 million men altogether that participate in this battle. Now, those are incredible numbers. Uh, this seems to be something very like total warfare. Now, in the ancient world, uh, especially with smaller kingdoms like Judah and Israel were at this point, uh, the army, the standing army usually was a fairly small thing. And, but every able-bodied man of a certain age within the nation could be called upon to fight in case of extreme need, in case of a need for defense. They wouldn't all fight at the same time. Normally, normally when you went out for your regular skirmishes and campaigns, you couldn't bring every man in the country to bear. It was much too risky. You might lose all of your capacity uh, to make sure the country keeps running. If you lost very badly, you could lose all your agricultural labor. You could even be wiped out altogether as a nation or very close to it. So normally they didn't send the whole uh, population of men out to battle, but they could in time of need. Now, in this case, it looks like we've got something pretty close to total mobilization because uh, just before David died, he had a census conducted. Now, he wasn't supposed to do that, and I'm not going to take the time to get into all that story right now. He got into trouble for it. God sent a punishment about that. But we do have the record given of what the count was of men who could go to war. And um, without getting into the specific numbers that David had, because there's in the two different accounts, there is a, a little difference in the numbers, and there's a reason why that is, but I'm not going to take the time to explain all that right now. But suffice it to say that if Israel brings to bear 800,000 men and Judah brings to bear 400,000 men, that's not too far from the full capacity that those nations were able to put into war. This is calling up almost every able-bodied man who could hold a sword in order to fight this battle. This is total warfare. 
And it's an incredible thing that this could happen within this people who are all called to be God's people. It really is terrible what sin can bring about, isn't it? You have a civil war, the chosen nation tearing itself apart on a field of battle over their petty rivalries that would never have even occurred if they had walked in obedience to God. That's what we have in this chapter. We'll talk more about the specifics of the battle here in a bit. But uh, let's start here in verse 1. It says, Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam began Abijah to reign over Judah. Now, if you look at your chart, uh, you see that Rehoboam reigned 17 years. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, of course, started to reign at the same time. Uh, Rehoboam, uh, some commentaries say that Rehoboam was the last king of the United Kingdom, but he he never really was. Uh, The people in the north never crowned him king. He went up to Shechem, remember, to be crowned king, and that's when they set their conditions. That's when the nation fell apart. And Jeroboam became king in the north, really at the same time Rehoboam becomes king in the south. Rehoboam reigned 17 years. You'll see that Jeroboam reigned 22 years. So that means that Jeroboam is still king when Abijah becomes king. And Abijah only reigns three years. So his three years plus Rehoboam's 17 make 20. And we find that Jeroboam outlives not only Rehoboam, but Abijam too. And his reign will go along to parallel uh, Asa for a couple of years. Well, anyway, uh, Abijah begins to reign. He reigns three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Uh, in another place, it says that his mother was the daughter of Absalom. And most likely the reason is that Absalom was actually his grandmother. Uh, The Hebrew language doesn't really have separate words for mother and grandmother or uh, daughter and granddaughter. When it says someone is a daughter, that may, that just means a female descendant, essentially. So most likely this Micaiah is the daughter of Uriel, who was the son of uh, Absalom. And... That's a bad background for him to have, by the way. We saw in an earlier lesson about how this woman was probably one of the factors that helped lead Rehoboam to his rebellion against God. Uh, She was a woman who was involved in some idolatry. Well, in verse 3, it says, Abijah set the battle in array with an army of valiant men of war, even 400,000 chosen men, and Jeroboam also set the battle in array against him with 800,000 chosen men, being mighty men of honor, an extraordinary number of men to engage in one battle. But before they start, Abijah has a speech to make. He's going to get up on Mount Zemaraim, which is in Mount Ephraim, it says in verse 4, and speak to Jeroboam. And he's going to assert his grievance and give his reason why he thinks that he has the right to engage in this war to try to reconquer the northern kingdom. Now, we have to evaluate for ourselves the accuracy of the statements he makes. Understand this. Everything in the Bible is true. But when the Bible records history, it sometimes records the lies or the uh, partial truths that men told. Not everything that the Bible says has recorded that are words that come from the lips of a man are true. It is merely that the Bible has a true record of what that person said. We find this out all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter three, right? Where 
The serpent tells a lie to Eve. What he says wasn't true, but the Bible has a true record of what he says. And that's what we mean when we say the Bible is uh, infallible with regard to those things. So this man Abijah has some things to say, some grievances to point out. And uh, it's really no different from some of our modern news. Uh, it's really rather tiresome, I think, in our age that it's almost impossible to find straight news. Every news outlet seems to be a little biased. It's not necessarily even that they're always dishonest, but they're selective in the facts they report. Everybody's spinning, and you have to uh, sort of uh, sometimes even evaluate more than one news source and hope that they at least keep each other in check and report on each other's failures and try to get a full picture of the news that way. But it, like I said, it's a rather tiresome thing to have to deal with. Well, it's nothing new. Uh, political leaders throughout history have told anything from partial truths to outright lies in order to uh, advance their own position or their own situation. So as we go through this speech Abijah makes here, we're going to play the role of fact checker. Right? We have fact checkers today who uh, have set themselves up as authorities to evaluate the statements of politicians or news organizations and so on. It raises the question, by the way, of who fact checks the fact checkers, because sometimes they're biased too. But uh, we're going to play fact checker here for a little bit with Abijah's statement to Jeroboam. Verse 5 of Second Chronicles 13, it says, Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons, by a covenant of salt? Now, this is a, an important statement because, remember, uh, Re, uh, Abijah is the son of Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, who is the son of David. And if this statement is entirely accurate, that bolsters the case for Rehoboam, to, or for Abijah, rather, to try to conquer Jeroboam and take back what is rightfully his. So let's examine the claim. He says that God gave this kingdom to David and to his sons, by a covenant of salt. We'll talk more in just a minute about what the covenant of salt means. But let's talk for a minute about the uh, covenant God made with David. Second Samuel chapter 7. I'm not going to read the entire covenant, but let me just read the 16th verse. It says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. He promises David a house, a kingdom, and a throne established forever. The kingdom, of course, is Israel. The throne is the position of rule. And the house means that there will be a seat of David that sits on the throne forever. Now, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that is in Jesus Christ, of the house of David, who will be a king forever. But that statement is not entirely clear that every, uh, that there will necessarily at all times be a son of David actually sitting on the throne. There is a promise that at some point the kingdom will be restored and go on forever. But if we look into this covenant a bit further, we find that when God speaks somewhat similar words to Samuel in 1 Kings chapter 9, after he becomes king, the message delivered to Samuel is a little different. And it goes like this. Uh, verse 
3, it says, And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou walk, thou wilt walk before me. Notice that word if. That makes this a conditional covenant. The covenant God made with David that his throne, his kingdom, his house will be established forever is unconditional. But the condition, the covenant made with Solomon is conditional. And it depends on Solomon's obedience. He says, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever. As I promised to David thy father, saying, there shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. So David has an unconditional promise that his house will have rule over Israel. Solomon does not. His promise is conditional. And so that means that because Solomon disobeyed God, remember, he didn't keep all of God's commandments. That means there's not necessarily a binding promise on behalf of Abijah, Solomon's grandson, that he should have the right to this kingdom. Now, I've noted this before, but let me say it again. If you study carefully the genealogy of Christ, you find that the genealogy given in Matthew, which traces down through uh, Jesus' adopted or uh, earthly father, not his biological father, of course, because Jesus didn't have a biological earthly father. He was born of a virgin. But Joseph, who was his adoptive father, you can trace his line all the way back through the line of the kings, back through Solomon. And so that gives Jesus the legal right to the throne. But the genealogy in Luke appears to be his biological line. And interestingly enough, the biological line of Christ does not go through Solomon, Rehoboam, and Abijah. It goes through another son of David named Nathan. And that's important because that tells us that God is keeping his unconditional covenant with David and that Christ will sit on the throne forever. But the conditional covenant that was made with Solomon, Solomon failed the condition. And so it won't be his descendant who sits on the throne forever. Now, that throws a little doubt on Abijah's claim, doesn't it? And then we go further and remember that God had actually made a covenant with Jeroboam himself. Back before Jeroboam had become king of the northern kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 11, God had sent a prophet to him and promised him that if he would keep the commandments that God gave, this is in 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight. it says, And it shall be if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee and walk in my ways and do that is right in my eyes to keep my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, that I will be with thee and build thee a sure house as I built for David and will give Israel unto thee. So God had actually made a covenant with Jeroboam in the north that if he would be obedient, his kingdom would be established in the north. Now, of course, Jeroboam was not obedient. He broke his condition too, right? This is another if covenant. He said, if you do this. So where does that leave us in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 13? Well, in the fifth verse, he says that God had given David the kingdom over to Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt. 
Uh, Covenant of salt's an interesting thing, by the way. It the salt was a picture of a great preservative. It was something that would demonstrate that a covenant had been given with great uh, duration. It was used as uh, an antibacterial, right? Even in fairly recent times before we had refrigeration, we used salt to preserve meat because it was antibacterial. We have the old expression rubbing salt in the wound. And of course we know how painful that is, but uh, if you don't have access to some kind of good antibacterial medication, uh, salt will help. It's not as good as some of the medicines we have now, but in a pinch, uh, to rub some salt in a wound would help prevent infection. And uh, sometimes in the ancient world, they would even put salt on their babies uh, to help prevent infection. It has antibacterial properties. It was used in the sacrifices that God had Israel to make. They were commanded to use salt. And so salt was a powerful image. Now, a covenant of salt was supposed to be a deeply binding covenant. Now, interestingly enough, God never called his covenant with David a covenant of salt. Abijah calls it that. It may just mean that he considers it to, may it be a figure of a speech, I guess, that he considers it to be a very binding covenant. But is this true? Well, when we evaluate this verse as a whole, it is true that God made a covenant with David. And it is true that he made a covenant that David's kingdom and his house and his throne would be forever. It is also true that God never said that there might not be some gap before that eternal promise comes to pass, which is proving out now, right? There hasn't been a king of David, uh, king of the house of David on the throne in Jerusalem for about 2,600 years. And, uh, but there will be one someday. Now, uh, when he made his covenant with Solomon, it was conditional and he had made a covenant with Jeroboam. So when we read this, uh, fifth verse of second Chronicles 13, as fact checkers, I think we have to look at it and say, uh, it's a rather mixed record. It's partly true, not entirely true. And then in verse six, he says, yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Sol- Solomon, the son of David is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. Well, how do we evaluate that statement? He says, Jeroboam is risen in rebellion. It wasn't actually rebellious for Jeroboam to take over the Northern kingdom because God sent him a prophet and instruction to do that, actually. We just read that a bit ago. It was true that Jeroboam had rebelled against the Lord in his conduct after he took the throne. And, of course, he led the nation, the northern kingdom, into idolatry and set up golden calves and so on. So, again, I think we give Abijah sort of a mixed rating on his fact check in that verse. Verse 7, he says, There are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted and could not withstand him. Now, it was true that when uh, Rehoboam was becoming king and had to deal with the northern kingdom, there were sort of sons of Belial, vain men in the north, who uh, led the movement against him. But it's interesting what he says about Rehoboam at the end of that verse. And you wonder what Rehoboam had told his son about the story of how he lost the northern kingdom. I don't know. I guess we all change the way we change our stories to make ourselves look better or maybe sometimes to feel sorry for ourselves. He says the reason the northern kingdom was able to take, was able to separate from his kingdom was because at the time he was young and tender hearted. Well, 
Rehoboam was 41 years old when this happened. He wasn't a 16-year-old kid. He was a grown man. He was actually born, uh, I believe, when David was still alive before Solomon became king because he was 41 years old. Solomon only reigned 40 years. So he was born at the end of King David's time. He wasn't young at all. And then he says that uh, he was tender-hearted. Now, let me go back to Second Chronicles chapter 10 and the 14th verse and remind you of what Rehoboam told the men of the northern kingdom. It says, And answered them after the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add thereto, My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Well, he sounds like a real tender-hearted sweetheart, doesn't he? he this is a false statement uh, in the end of that verse. Rehoboam was not young and tender-hearted and didn't have the kingdom stolen away from him for that reason. He was a foolish man, and that's why he lost the kingdom. At least at that time, he behaved foolishly. He goes on in verse 8, Second Chronicles thirteen eight. Abijah continues his speech. To Jeroboam, he says, And now ye think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, and be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves which Jeroboam made you for gods. That part is true. That's That fact check checks out. Uh, verse 9 says, Have ye not cast out the priests of the Lord and sons of Aaron and the Levites, and have made you priests after the manner of the nations of other lands, so that whosoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. Now that pretty well tracks true as well, because we looked before at how after Jeroboam took over in the north and set up his false worship centers, that the priests and the Levites in the north who wanted to serve God had to migrate south and take up their residence in Judah. And it is true that Jeroboam had set up men to be priests who should not have been priests. Base men who did not have the qualification for that office, according to God. So that verse checks out. But look at the next verse. It says, But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The shewbread also set they in order upon the pure table, and the candlestick of gold with the lamps thereof to burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but ye have forsaken him. So this is his argument that uh, the kingdom in the south, the kingdom of Judah, has been faithful and true to God and the temple and the sacrifices. The kingdom in the north has forsaken God, and therefore he has the right to attack. Verse 12 says, And behold, God himself is with us for our captain, and his priests with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you. O children of Israel, fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. He warns them not to even fight, because God is on their side. Now, is he telling the truth here? He says, We have not forsaken God, in verse 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. But if you look back at chapter 12, verse 1, speaking of Abijah's father, Rehoboam, it says, And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. So the nation had forsaken God. And speaking of Abijah specifically, 
when we come to 1 Kings chapter 15, it gives the record of his reign this way. Verse 3 says, And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. That is, Abijah had walked in the sins of Rehoboam, who had forsaken God. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him, and to establish his uh, and to establish Jerusalem. So Abijah was not himself faithful to God. He had forsaken the Lord. So we have to give this passage again, I think, a mixed rating. There were priests who came down to the temple and they were faithful to God, but it wasn't Abijah who caused that to happen. He himself was unfaithful. And uh, you'll notice, by the way, that in this list of sacrifices they made, they're good things to do, but they don't have any record of sin offerings or trespass offerings. Anyway, we find that this speech is a very mixed up sort of thing of uh, truth and half-truth and and uh, dishonesty. He's making his case, though, in essence, that he has the right to the kingdom because God has given it to his family and because the nation has been faithful to God. Well, the final fact check belongs to God. So let's see what actually happens in the battle. Remember, we have 800,000 men from Israel and only 400,000 for Judah. Abijah's a pretty bold man, by the way, isn't he, to come out number two to one and make a speech like this, threatening the northern kingdom. And uh, he's got another problem. It looks like his opponent, Jeroboam, may be a better military leader. He outmaneuvers him. In verse 13, it says, But Jeroboam caused an ambushment to come about behind them, so they were before Judah, and the ambushment was behind them. Now Judah and their king Abijah are caught in a trap with Judah, uh, with Israel rather, in front of them and behind them. And when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind, and they cried unto the Lord, and the priests sounded with the trumpets. And a remarkable thing happens here. Even though Abijah is not a very good king, and he is sort of telling half-truths about his appeal to God, yet when the people did cry unto the Lord, and the priests sounded with the trumpets, the Lord intervened, and he gave Judah the victory. It says in verse 15, Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah, And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter. So there fell down slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. This is an absolutely astonishing casualty rate. 500,000 men dead in one day. They had 800,000 in their army, so they lost over half of that. To give you some perspective on this, I believe that in World War II, the United States lost about 480,000 killed in action in the entire war. And Israel here loses more than that in this one battle because God intervened on behalf of uh, Judah. And it says there in verse 18, Thus the children of Israel were brought under at that time, And the children of Judah prevailed because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. 
And here's a remarkable thing. This southern kingdom has become rather wicked. Rehoboam and Abijah have been ungodly kings. And uh, very frankly, even Solomon toward the end of his reign was not a godly king. He had gone off into idolatry. So they've had quite a long run of uh, ungodly rule. And many of the people had forsaken God. But there was this remnant down there among the priests who really were serving God in the temple. And they were keeping alive the picture of the mercy of God, the picture of God's own son, Jesus Christ, that that temple represented in that place. And when the battle came, they relied upon the Lord and they demonstrated their faith. And so God intervened miraculously and gave them a great victory. 500,000 men of the northern kingdom killed. We're not told how many of the southern kingdom were killed, uh, but we might have a hint at it because they went out with 400,000 men in chapter 13. In chapter 14, we're going to find out that they go out to battle with 300,000 men. So it's been speculated that maybe they lost about 100,000. That would be actually pretty interesting, by the way, because that would basically even up the armies of the north and the south. If the northern army had 800,000 and lost 500,000, that leaves them with 300,000. And in chapter 14, the southern army has 300,000. It may have been partly God's way of trying to even those two kingdoms up so neither one would conquer the the other. But uh, that's what he brings to pass at this time. Now, it's interesting that Abijah, in spite of this great victory, is not able to capitalize on it very much. He's not able to pursue his victory and overrun the northern kingdom. Remember, in the first part of the chapter, in that speech he gives, He's clearly expressing the opinion that this nation belongs to him. But he's only able to take a little bit of territory. It says in verse 19, And Abijah pursued after Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with the towns thereof, and Deshanah with the towns thereof, and Ephraim with the towns thereof. So basically he just moves the border north a few miles. He's not able to overrun the northern kingdom. And this state of division continues. Well, I think what we can say about this is that God was superintending in this battle to bring the outcome exactly where it needed to be. He wasn't going to make Abijah king over a united kingdom. He also wasn't going to let Jeroboam conquer Judah. And so after this battle, it's very interesting. You never really read about this, hear about this Bible battle in Sunday school or vacation Bible school when you're a kid. It's very obscure. But in terms of the number of participants and the number of casualties, it's one of the greatest battles in the history of the Bible or the world for that matter. And after half a million people die, they only move the border a few miles. Tragic waste of life. And it all comes about because of the mess that sin makes in this world. And uh, so we've killed off 500,000 or maybe 600,000 men, depending on how many men of Judah died, and really haven't changed the situation very much. We may maybe change it a little. You'll notice in your chart that uh, after Jeroboam, the northern kingdom's kings for a while seem to have their uh, capital in a place called Tirzah, or they have some residence there anyway. And it's a little further north than Shechem, where it was before. It may be because uh, Abijah had pushed the border uncomfortably close to Shechem, and they may have retreated a little further north. 
But anyway, we have this massive battle and this incredible speech that Abijah gives where we're trying to evaluate important matters of the exact standing between the North and the South, and yet not much really changes. Let me note one thing before we finish here. It says in verse 20, Neither did Jeroboam recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. Now, we noticed in our lesson last time that Jeroboam had a son who was sick, a child, whose name, confusingly enough, was also Abijah, the same as this king that Jeroboam just fought. They're two different people. But he has this son named Abijah. His wife went to visit a prophet, and the prophet informed him that that child was going to die. And that that child alone, out of all the males of the house of Jeroboam, would go down to the grave. That is, everyone else in the house would be dishonored. Now, this 20th verse is a tantalizing thing because we don't know a lot of the details of exactly what happened to Jeroboam, but there was some miraculous intervention of the Lord that the Lord struck him down and apparently kept that promise in that way so that he did not go down with honor to his grave. So Jeroboam moves off the scene and... uh Abijah, it says in verse 21 and 22, it tells about the rest of his story, and Abijah is going to pass off the scene. Lord willing, next time we'll pick up with the reign of Abijah's son Asa in Jerusalem. And Asa turns out to be a very good king who uh, does a lot to set the southern kingdom of Judah back on the right path. The northern kingdom never really had a good king. But the southern kingdom did have a few, and Asa is one of those men. He's going to reign for 41 years. He'll have a son named Jehoshaphat, who's going to be a good king, and he'll reign for 25 years. So we're headed into a good era here for the southern kingdom for a little bit. We'll stop there for this time. Lord willing, next week we'll pick up in Second Chronicles chapter 14.